and welcome to Always Take Notes. A message from our sponsor, Arvon. Do you have a story in you or want to test the waters of writing poetry or non-fiction? Maybe you already write and write well, but would like to try a new form or genre, pick up some new tricks. Enter Arvon. Arvon run a yearly programme of in-person and online events, from five-day residential writing weeks that take place at one of their three writing houses, to pay-what-you-can online events and online masterclasses that delve deep into craft over the course of two hours. Their courses cover everything from commercial, genre and experimental fiction to poetry, screenwriting and even songwriting. They've been running creative writing courses up and down the UK since 1968. In that time, their prize-winning tutors, many of whom may be some of your favourite writers, have unlocked the creativity of over 100,000 people. Many have gone on to be published authors and career writers themselves. But actually, it's not about that. Writing with Arvon is about finding a supportive community of fellow writers, making like-minded connections that last a lifetime. By signing up for a course, you don't just get an acclaimed author as your tutor. You also gain a writing group to bounce ideas off long after the course is finished. So whether it's a cosy stay at one of their writing houses in Devon, West Yorkshire or Sleepy Shropshire, or a course you can do from the comfort of your sofa, Arvon works around your creative life. Visit arvon.org slash courses, that's A-R-V-O-N dot org slash courses, to learn more and give yourself the gift of writing. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke with the novelist and historian, Philippa Gregory. We spoke to Philippa about her early career in academia, finding huge success as a historical novelist, and her latest book, Normal Women. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Philippa, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's great to have you on the show. We wanted to start with the new book, Normal Women. We saw that you'd written elsewhere that the origin of this project came from when you were working on The Other Berlin Girl, and you mentioned that Anne Boleyn's sister Mary, who had this incredible life, was kind of known as an annex to her sister. Could you tell us about how this project came to be? She's even less known than an annex, really. Uh, she's, she was hardly known at all. When I uh, found her, I was working in the London Library. This was the days before digitised assets and internet. So I went to the London Library to read around and I thought I wanted to do a novel on pirates of England. And I believe that there was a woman parrot in the Tudor period, and indeed there is. But so I was looking at ships manifests, uh, ships of the English dockyards that were being launched. And I came across one launched by Henry VIII called the Mary Boleyn. And I went, that's odd because I know of Anne and I know of Elizabeth, her mother, but I've never heard of Mary Boleyn. And in the way that sometimes you don't know that you've just found something, because if you weren't looking for it, you don't really want to find it. I went, that's got to be wrong. So I just, since I was in the library, I just turned to an index of who's who at the Tudor court, looked at Mary Boleyn and found that she was the absolutely unrecorded, but at the time perfectly well-known, mistress of Henry VIII. And indeed, she bore him a son who was named Henry and who was recognised as being his son, though she was married to someone else and the boy took his name. She then bore him a girl, Catherine. So you've got this extraordinary story of women and and Henry VIII, sibling rivalry, this, you know, Really, and it's completely unknown. And so I immediately went, this is fantastically interesting and it's going to be my next book. And when I wrote of Mary Boleyn, she was literally no more than a footnote. And uh, since then, there have been three, I think, biographies, historical biographies written of her. 
as well as she appears in other novels. And so when did research begin in earnest for normal women? It sounds like you'd sort of been collecting or interested in, in the women of history while you're doing research for your, for your novels. But when did you think this is a standalone project in its own right? I think about 10 or 12 years ago, I started feeling that uh, my experience was that I kept finding extraordinarily interesting women. And then as soon as I'd written up them for a novel, I would find another one. And she might be a sister or an aunt or a cousin or a mother. And initially, people said to me, how do you find these wonderful women? And I say, well, they're just there. And then it, it dawned on me, and I feel now really, really slowly dawned on me, that it wasn't just that there was one interesting woman, and she happened to be related to another interesting woman, but that there were literally hundreds and thousands of women in the records that nobody ever individually explored. And if you did, what you would get was, I didn't want to write a sequence of individual women's lives. What I wanted to write was the history of 50% of the population, all of these women. And how could you get to a sense of a, a proper national history of women? Because at the moment, we have proper national histories of men. And with a few stars of women in it, with a few heroines of women in it, or a few particularly unfortunate women in it, women martyrs or mothers. Uh, and I went, this is, you know, this is really a history which, you know, and the phrase of the great Sheila Robottom is hidden from history and nobody has yet tackled it on a national long history scale. The kind of jobs or lives pursued by the women you write about seem to be very different to the I suppose, our popular conception of early modern or medieval women. So highway women and pirates, miners, ship owners, international traders commissioning plays by Shakespeare. Could you give a few examples of particularly interesting lives that you came across while working on this book? I think one of the typical things that we don't tend to think about is women's role in civil disobedience and women's roles in running their communities. Because we know women don't have legal power, we think they have no legal authority. We sort of assume that women are governed rather than being the governing. But in the medieval villages, most of the acts of community shaming, which is how discipline is maintained, are organised by the women, the older women in the village, who are in a sense keeping up the standards of the village. So often, in a rather unsisterly way, they're directed against young single women or against uh, young people whose behaviour is deemed to be too exuberant. But they're also directed against wife beaters and drunken men. So the idea of the community shaming piece of theatre. So somebody might clatter pans under somebody's window or they'd leave an insulting gift on the doorstep or they'd do a thing called a skimmington ride, which is when they take a horse out and dress it up and people dress up and make a little procession of it. All of those things are directed against people who are offending against community standards, which is almost always offending the older women of the village who organise these sorts of shaming. So there's that sort of control they have. The other thing they do is they're very, very hot on taking people to court for slander. It's like, you know, sensitive celebrities. <laughs> Older women, if their good name is, is impugned, are very, very hot on going to the courts and accusing anyone who has insulted them for slander. And you think at first that that's vanity, but actually because a woman's name is the thing that guarantees all of her business life because she can't guarantee it legally. On a piece of paper, it means nothing because she has no legal presence. So she can't pursue a debtor. 
and she can't be taken into court. So the only way a woman can do business is if everybody knows that she is absolutely as good as her word. And so that's why if somebody says a woman is a liar or a cheat or immoral in any way, it's it's not just her reputation, it's her brand. And the idea of these women operating as both social forces and economic forces is not something that you get from the usual picture of, you know, woman harnessed up to the plough. What was your process of research? How did you sort of find these stories on a, on a very practical level? There's a lot of material already published. So, for instance, the court papers of Henry VIII are not only published, but digitised. So you could literally discover the transactions of a Tudor court by, by one click. And that's, you know, the miracle of the internet for the scholar is, you know, you just can't really measure it. It just means that you can be in every library in the world. It's extraordinary. A lot of this material has been written up very, very well. Um and appears in secondary pieces. A lot of this material is written by modern writers. So literally I consulted so many modern historians whose work I'm just so grateful for. But a lot of the material is written up. The Victorians are great enthusiasts for the medieval world and they write it up in great detail and they do a lot of the translations without which I couldn't work on the material. But it comes with the Victorian morality, it comes with the Victorian worldview. So you get this really pushing this notion that the English are very calm, tolerant, Whiggish, broad-minded, politically aware, stable, money-making, commercial, liberal society, which simply is not borne out by what's actually happening in the records that they report, but they report them in such a way. So something like a Skimmington ride, as I described, or something like the food riot, which medieval women just, you know, run as a price controlling mechanism in every market when the price goes over what's uh, what they can afford to pay. There's a little riot until the price comes down again. And the Victorians really avoid reporting this because it doesn't fit with their view of a very passive, obedient population. And they really avoid reporting it because they're frightened that it will spread. If you suggest that the British are in fact quite politically radical, quite inflammable, you don't want that when you're building an empire to go out and dominate the rest of the world. You're kind of alluding to this this point in, in what you've just said there, but it's it's often said about historical fiction in particular that it says as much about the period in which it was written as the period in which it was set and, and history as well. And with with this approach you've taken with your new book, but it's also that you know this has sometimes come up with your novels, is there ever a risk of of overstating the kind of political agency that women had or the determination that they had about their lives and the, the society at large of kind of imposing 21st century values retrospectively? Well, of course, I'm looking for active women. You know, there's no denying that, you know, I'm a feminist historian. I'm I'm looking to see what women are doing. So if I found massive centuries where they were, you know, sitting in the castle and spinning, then I would be obliged to report that. But it wouldn't make me particularly happy, but I would be obliged to report that because that's a historian bit of the deal. However, even when they're sitting in a room and spinning, they are actually participating and they are the driving force of England's biggest export. So even when women look as if they're behaving in a stereotypical way, they are, in fact, engaged 
in this case, in an economic activity which is absolutely essential to the prosperity of the country, but isn't really counted because it takes place in the home, in private and unobserved. Um, in much the same way that working women today are producing, in terms of domestic work, something like 60 billion of the gross domestic product, but it's not measured and it's not counted. So in a sense, when we think women are doing nothing, when we think women are behaving in the way that maybe the stereotype of history suggests that they are inactive, in fact, they're often doing a very great deal that we don't count. You obviously amassed a huge amount of material for this book. Was it hard to leave things out? How did you choose your, your subjects and your and, and then sort of weave them together into a into a single thread? Well, it's kind of a technical question, but at the very beginning, I had to decide whether I was going to do, as it were, themes, say, women and punishment or women and, you know, you could do women and riot. Women and civil disobedience would be a wonderful book. So would I do themes? So women in crime, women in sex, women in power, women in punishment, and start each theme, get right the way through, and then come back to the 1066 and the next theme. And I went like, I really don't want to do that because I think it'd be very frustrating for the reader going through time and then coming back. So I decided to write it chronologically from 1066 to 1994. And what I would do is I would explore the themes in each epoch as they struck me as being important. So it was a very naive read and it was a very naive sort of approach to it but it was one that tried to be absolutely responsive to the material and not go into each epoch and say I'm absolutely certain to do women in crime in this section I only did women in crime in the section if what came up was a real interesting view of how crimes developed or how women were punished or how women were entering to crimes who weren't there before. The invention of chloroform, for instance, was almost immediately followed by the prosecution of Fat Beth, a prostitute of the Victorian period who solicited a gentleman, clapped a chloroform pad over his head, reduced him to unconsciousness and stole all his jewellery. And, you know, you just go like, I've got to have Fat Beth in, in a section about Victorian crime because there she is immediately adapting a new invention to criminal purposes. But that's kind of, that is a sort of footnote. But the, 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 the decision to do chronological epochs of women's history and in them just to write about what was really uppermost, what was coming up in the records over and over again, was a way to filter out everything that ever happened in the universe forever. We wanted to come back to the, the new book in due course, but could we roll back now to your early life and your kind of initial interest in books? We saw that you were born in um, East Africa and then came back to the UK after a couple of years, um, but also that your godfather gave you an illustrated book of poetry when you were seven. Um, could you tell us about your early life and your you know first interest in matters literary? I think I was, I was a very early reader and I really loved books. I was lucky to have a mother who read to me every night. And uh, I learned to read before I went to school. I learned to read from looking at the the pictures and her saying the words and just figuring it out. So I think I've always been a very, I've been someone who loves books all my life. My godfather did give me a most beautiful book of poetry, which I loved. And 
You know, I was born in the 50s and there weren't screens and there weren't the diversions that young people have today. And I'm genuinely glad that they have them because there were enormous periods of longer in which my memory is there was literally nothing to do uh, except perhaps go to the library and read books. And I and so every week when my mother played tennis, I would go to the library um, and take out four books and read one book there. And uh, I knew that I could read until closing time. So I'd get there about, I suppose, two, and I'd read for two hours. And I could normally get through a children's book in those two hours, and then I'd take four home. Um, and, you know, it was it was kind of teaching speed reading, and it was teaching a, a real real march through the library, which I don't think you'd reproduce in a children in a normal child's life today. Which were some of the books that you liked most and, and why do you think those those titles in particular sort of spoke to you as a youngster? Very young. I loved um, the Little Grey Rabbit books, which people hardly read now. They are rather twee, but they're nice. Alison Utley wrote one and she wrote a book called The Country Child, which is very evocative as well. I loved Kipling, particularly Storky and Co., which is, of course, problematic. But Storky and Co. is about boys gang at an English boys school. It's very, very, very funny. And it's sort of anti-authoritarian in that sort of pre-war sort of way. Uh, so cheeky rather than rebellious. I mean, Elizabeth Googe. And then after a little while, I got into older books. And then I really, really loved historical fiction. I read Georgette Hare and Anya Seaton and those sorts of books very much. And then when I was older, I embarked on the decision to read my local library throughout. I used to go in at lunchtime when I was a journalist if before I started going to the pub. I used to go into lunchtime and read in the library. And I decided to start at Z rather than at A. So I, I read all of Emile Zola before I realised I could just as well be in the pub. Could you tell us about your experience of organised education? We saw that you were a kind of rebellious schoolgirl and then that you, you went to journalism college, worked as a trainee journalist and then went to Sussex to study English literature. So how did that part of your life work? I became interested in left-wing politics and social justice and particularly international issues really rather young, about 15, in the rather pompous way that 15-year-olds sometimes do. I was certainly a very pompous 15-year-old. And it led me to be sort of a bit radical at school, which amounts to literally nothing in terms of, you know, political activity. But I did form a, a schoolgirls' union at my all-girls school, and I did lead a uniform strike, which at the time meant suggesting that we didn't have to wear ties which are, after all, a symbol of male dress, and that we shouldn't have to wear hats. It's not, you know, it's not Emily Pankhurst, but it's, you know, it was where I was at the time. And uh, the sort of awkwardness that I felt at my school meant that I didn't get very good A-levels, which meant that I didn't want to go to university and didn't think I would go to university. One of them was in history, and the, uh, it was English history and geography, which is a little bit embarrassing now. So you think that I did really badly at history at school, but then it was very, very boring syllabus. It was the wars of the Emperor Justinian in Europe. And, you know, you would 
die rather than study it. You know, it was unbelievably boring. So a friend of mine said, tell you what, why don't you be a journalist? I'm going to be a journalist. And in the rather casual way that I undertook my early life, I went, oh yeah, okay, I'll do that. That sounds fine. And I went to journalism college in Cardiff and did a pre-entry course. And then I got a post at the Portsmouth Evening News in Portsmouth. And I did my, I served my apprenticeship on the, in provincial press journalism in a way that simply doesn't exist anymore. Unionised, big newsroom, evening paper. Very, very exciting work, except for the bits of it which are exhaustingly boring. So when I came to do my third year at the annual Chrysanthemum show with the same people winning, I have to say, every year and the same photographs of the Chrysanthemums every year, I went, I can't stand this. I have to do something else. And I could have, even in those days, it would have been possible probably to get to London and become a national journalist. But I actually thought, having been reading Zola in the library, uh, that I should probably go to university and read English literature. So I went to the University of Sussex and was very, very lucky to be there at the time where it was still extremely innovative and liberal. And most of the work was assessed by continuous assessment, not by exams. So there was a real drive for academic and scholarly excellence at the university. And in particular, they did a sort of taster course. So the first year you took your chosen humanities and you took two other courses. So I did English philosophy and history. My lecturer was Morris Hutt on the Taster History course. And I just went, this answers every question I have ever asked in my life. It was it was like finding a religion. I went, this, this is the thing I have to study for the rest of my life. All I want to do is to study history. And everything else probably flows from that moment. Uh, just to linger briefly on your on your journalism career I mean other than an abundance of flower puns did that stint teach you anything about about writing and and the craft of putting words on the page that you that you found helpful in your career it was a genuine craft apprenticeship and it did all of that so I even now later in life I never go I'm not in the mood to write I know that it's perfectly possible to just say, I'm sitting down, I'm writing now. I have a real sense of respect for the word count because, you know, you're really aware of how much space you have in in a newspaper article and how much you can get. And so I'm really aware when I look at something, how many words it's going to take to tell the story adequately. And delivering on time is an absolute burden that I carry. I, I am deeply unhappy if I'm ever late and I just will always stay up late or wake up early in the morning to write rather than miss a deadline. No, it's a great, great, great training and also the 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 idea that telling a story is exciting, that it's urgent, that you pick up the phone and somebody tells you something and you go like, well, in the, in the best of worlds, you go like, I've got the front page. That's a front page story. I mean, the excitement of narrative absolutely was a daily excitement even even on on a on a relatively small provincial paper could you tell us about your um other career pre wideacre so you you worked at the bbc and then you you did a phd and further to to rachel's question what do you feel about kind of academic writing, as it were? We often, when we have historians or, or critics on the show, it's interesting to ask them about the, the register of prose that is, is published in academia versus for a wider audience. What did you take away from that period? 
in a way, there isn't a sort of separation in my life that the one thing, if I was to say elegantly flows, I would be lying, it muddles into, <laughs> one thing muddles into another. So when I finished my history degree at Sussex, I didn't know what I wanted to do next. So I took a year working as a freelance and that led me to working for BBC Radio in Radio Solent on the South Coast, exactly where I was living anyway. So I then started working in, in radio for which the writing discipline is completely different again. I, I do believe that you put most of your information in a newspaper, that's got the capacity to, to say the most. Radio a little bit less, because you've got to have other things, you've got to have the immediacy, you sometimes want actuality, you're sometimes doing it live. So there's a quite different tone and feel to good radio copy and television even less when you get to television which is how most people get their news it's extraordinary that you will get less information from a television report than say a wonderfully succinct report in something like the financial times which always seems to me to be the absolute pinnacle of the most material into the smallest number of words just extraordinary talent so i was writing as a radio journalist and performing as a radio journalist and reporting as a radio journalist, sometimes live on air, which is a wonderful discipline for making your brain find the things you want to say. And again, it was a training, which I really enjoyed very much. And then I realised that what I should have done all along was go and do a PhD. So I started applying to different places and got a place at Edinburgh University with my tutor there, who is called Geoffrey Carnell, who was a wonderful, wonderful patient calm tutor who was a Quaker and had a great faith in silent thought and for me who had by then done you know <laughs> six seven years of literally thinking and talking and thinking and writing it was very very interesting to come to somebody who was very meditative in his process and he taught me he was absolutely rigorous I mean in that sense, a really horrible editor. So I wrote my PhD thesis under his supervision and he was meticulous in terms of choice of words and language and the structure of a sentence and how it all fitted in. And the the one thing that was, well, there were many things that were very exciting about my PhD thesis, but one of the things is I read as many of the bestsellers of the 18th century as I could and I ran them through a computer program to see what similarities they had to each other. And if there was, in a sense, a core 18th century novel. And I used up the Department of English's computer time for the previous five years because every 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 department was allocated computer time. And of course, the computer sciences people that was all they wanted. Nobody had wanted to use a computer to analyse English literature until I got to Edinburgh University. So it was completely unique. And the computer guys got quite excited about it because they could see that this was a perfectly valid way of reading a text. I mean, now people do computer analysis of, of everything in order, to, in, indeed, in order to determine the author. But that was the first time anybody had done it at Edinburgh. So we had a lot of fun. So I had a literature PhD thesis, which has lovely graphs in it and little maps of it in it and colouring in and everything. It was good fun. It was good fun. And it took me longer than it should have done. It took me four years to do. And when I came out of that, I couldn't get a post anywhere. Margaret Thatcher had closed 
frozen posts at the universities. And while I was applying for an academic post, I wrote my first novel, Wideacre, literally out of the themes and the stories and the energy of the 18th century popular novels, mostly written by women. Was there a particular, uh, you know, point of inspiration for you for the novel? I, I love how casually you said that. I just, I just wrote my, I just wrote my novel um, <laughs> after my PhD. You know, what, what, what was the sort of spark of uh, creativity? I think the themes of the 18th century novels are really. It, I mean, it's so interesting to me that they're at a time of peak enclosure and peak cruelty to country people. So it's the times that the big, big, big houses are built. You know, Mansfield Park is built and the big walls go round the country parks and sometimes entire villages are cleared in order to make these parks spectacularly beautiful. And Capability Brown lays out these lovely lawns over someone else's cornfield. I mean, it's an extraordinary time for the upper classes oppression of country people, country and working people. So, but you don't hear any of that in the novels because they know it's happening. They know they should be ashamed of themselves they don't want to talk about it. What they do want to talk about is this new fashion for romantic love, for choosing your husband and the structures that society needs to get these people together. So the 18th century novels become, almost as soon as they're invented, an exploration of women's consciousness and women's awareness and what women want in these very domestic enclosed circumstances and the danger to women if you step outside. So immediately I have my heroine who doesn't want to be an enclosed woman, who does want to step outside, who is in touch with her own inner wildness that matches the wildness of the oppressed people outside the park gates, and who wants also the rights of a man she wants to inherit her brother's estate, the estate her brother's going to inherit. And because I've been so disciplined in my life for so very long. The idea of this sort of wildness and the sexual wildness was just absolutely the novel I wanted to write. And I was lucky enough to be in that sort of mood, writing that sort of book at a time where the all the publishers, all the big publishers were going like, what we're seeing is a massive decline in historical fiction because we're not telling a story in historical fiction that modern women want to read. So prior to Wideacre, all the historical fiction was very conventional and very respectable and was about love stories, but was about women behaving well in love stories and sometimes being victimised. And I produced this story, which was partly a love story, partly a story of rebellion, partly a story of feminism, early feminism. And it was certainly a woman not behaving well. And that absolutely chimed with the 80s, you know, interest in liberated sexuality and in feminism. We um, always love to talk on the podcast about how people got their books, particularly their first books, published. So with Wideacre, you know, you said it's chiming with this cultural moment in publishing. But what was the, the experience of getting an agent and, and selling the book? This drives people mad because it's really, really irritating. I know. I sent it to uh, somebody I had known from my previous where I lived previously, and I knew that she was in publishing. And she said to me, oh, try this agent at an agency. And I sent it to her and she said, I love this. Uh, I sent her three chapters and a synopsis. And she said, I love this. Write some more and send it back to me. And I was 
busy <laughs> and I was moving house and I had a newborn baby and I just uh, didn't get round to it. And so I didn't get round to it until I was in my new house and settled down with my baby. And uh, I was unpacking the boxes and I came across this letter and the manuscript and I went like, oh yeah, I'll take that up again in that sort of frighteningly nonchalant way. And I took it up again and I sent it to her. And by then she had moved from her big agency and she had set up on her own. And she said, this is, this is a bestseller. You have to get you have to start writing it and because I was working part-time and casually as a freelance I said well I can't just devote hours of time to it I've got to make you know I've got to make some money from this and she said how much would you like to make and I said it's going to be at least a year it's got to be 15,000 pounds and she said I can promise you it will make that and in the end it made a quarter of a million (laughs) But that's because it was exactly the book that people wanted at the time. How did you juggle having a part-time job, writing a novel and having a baby? Well, initially, I just wrote at night and I wrote when the baby was asleep. And I was lucky that I had a baby that slept very well and slept in the morning. So I'd have two good hours in the morning and then I'd write when she went to bed at night. And because it was such a pleasure to write, it never felt like now I'm going to work. It felt just as you might say, now, at last, the baby's asleep, I'll get a glass of wine and read a book. I will get a glass of wine and write the book. So it was a pleasure in that way. It it wasn't that. Also, I've always been, always been a very prompt writer and a fast writer. So it wasn't that it took hours and hours and hours for every chapter. It, It wrote very fast. And, you know, after she was a little bit older, she started to go to play school. And then she went to nursery. And in those hours when she was out of the house and being educated, I I started to write. And then when she went to school, then I got my day back. We are thrilled to announce the publication of Always Take Notes, advice from some of the world's greatest writers. The book, edited by the two of us, features contributions from almost 100 past guests on the podcast. It's a distillation of the wit and wisdom we've heard over the past six years. The book offers, we think, frank and entertaining guidance on writing in particular and living a creative life in general. It answers questions such as, where do the best ideas come from? How do you stay motivated? What does it take to become a published author? And how do you actually make money from your writing? Published by Ithaca Press, Always Take Notes, advice from some of the world's greatest writers is available now in all good bookshops. We hope you enjoy reading it. Could you tell us how your career then continued to build after that? It's interesting we had Lee Child on recently and a point that he emphasised was, you know, that the first book was successful, but he said actually it was, you know, eight or ten years really of of build before he felt that he was a kind of voice in the culture or that his central character, Jack Reacher, had a kind of wider existence and, and things like that. I mean, how did how did things develop for you, say, between Wideacre and, and the other Bilingo? I think I had a sense when I wrote Wideacre, partly because I had just read more than 100 18th century novels, that it was a genuinely authentic, popular, but genuinely authentic novel that I could, in a sense, rely on as as a good first novel. So I never had a sense, I never had imposter syndrome about 
wide acre. I knew that it was put together, that it progressed, that it did all the things that a novel ought to do. I knew it did that. So I embarked on my second novel with quite a lot of confidence. It was harder to write. I did have a sense of self-consciousness, which I think everybody does. So, But also, people tell you all the time a second novel's difficult, whereas nobody tells you a first novel's difficult because you don't tell anyone you're writing one. So you're much more public in terms of I am now writing my second novel and everybody always says to you really depressingly oh well that's really hard isn't it and I don't think it needs to be but I think you bring to it a self-consciousness and probably as a woman writer that's probably worse for women as most self-consciousness is worse for women and then I got to the third novel so the second novel I was really really pleased with but it was much more careful it was much more carefully written it was much more rewritten and when I got to my third novel I just adored writing it it was set in a circus and I went for two seasons traveling with a circus allegedly to get the research but actually just because it was such a wonderful opportunity and I went with my husband and my daughter and we had a caravan and traveled with Jerry Cottle Circus which was just the most fun and also it just gave me this wonderful sense of the world in which my character could sit and it's also it's a victory novel it's the it's the return of the woman who makes a legitimate claim on the land and wins and loves somebody and he's the right person for her so it's a real it's a trilogy and it's a really happy ending to the trilogy and it was just such a happy book it was just a lovely book to write and thereafter all my other books were very intensely researched going to the places and immersing myself in the in the location and immersing myself in the history and of course they've grown and I've written about with male protagonists as well but they've always been that sort of combination of really really deep historical research and uh, location research as well and then the characters in a sense take off a question we often put to novelists on the show is whether they're a plotter or a plunger. So whether they're someone that has the whole shape of the novel worked out in advance or whether they're someone who just dives in and, and sees what happens. Where do you sit on that on that spectrum? Uh, I'm probably more of a plotter because once I started developing the technique of, actually, I did it in Virgin Earth and Earthly Joys, but taking a real-life historical character and following his or her story through their life. In a sense, I'm not plotting that. That plot is given to me. And one of the things that people say is like, aren't you tempted to to dramatise and fictionalise it? And actually, the if you pick the right person, and that I don't know how to pick the wrong person because everybody's life is extraordinarily full of drama to them. You know, nobody... I think on their deathbed would say, I have lived a really boring life and nothing interesting happened. Um, you know, when, when to yourself, your life is full of drama. So if you put yourself in someone else's shoes, you find their life is full of drama. But in any case, in the case of John Tredescant, the older, and then John Tredescant, the younger, these were explorers who went, John Tredescant, the older, goes to Russia. And John Tredescant, the younger, goes to the Americas twice, plant collecting. During the time of the English Civil War, they're gardeners to the king. So you've got people at the very centre of the 
biggest political upheaval that the country's ever had. And they are also adventurers. So they're fantastic stories to tell. And I don't need to do anything but just follow their stories. And my job is to look at the bones of the story and breathe life into it. My job is to make the reader feel that they're there. And that's that's the task I think of a good historical novelist is to take the history and bring it alive. Could you tell us about the other Berlin girl now, both in to what extent it was a, a step change for your writing career, but also the experience of having your work adapted? And with adaptation for television or film, how much involvement have you had in that process? Well, the other Berlin girl was, it, she was a genuine discovery. Mary Berlin was, as I say, I was looking for something else and found her. And as soon as I started exploring her life, I realised that it was a truly extraordinarily life which had not been told at all. So I had to find her in court records. I found her in wardrobe records. So I knew extraordinary detailed things about her on one day. I knew the colour of the dress she was wearing and the part she was playing in a play. And then she'd just literally drop off the records and I didn't know what she was doing. But I would guess that she was travelling with the court because she should pop up later in the court. So that was a really good training for how to write about someone who is on the margins of history, which is where most women characters are going to be if you want to research them. And then she was an immensely endearing character. So she occupied my mind very, very fully, very, very thoroughly. And the world that she lived in is, of course, extremely well known. So you have, in a sense, what people think they know about the Tudor court, both to exploit and also to play against. So the character of Catherine of Aragon, who most people think of as the first old wife that died in exile, to see her in her youth and beauty at the court was really very lovely. You know, it was it was a it was to play against the the stereotype of the Tudor court. So and when it was I didn't I thought it I thought I knew it was good. I was absolutely convinced that it was a good novel and it came at a time where my star was a little bit eclipsed and so I wasn't publishing in hardback in America. No, I was only publishing in hardback in America. I didn't have a paperback contract with a publisher and my publishers in the UK had been reporting falling sales. So there was a little bit of a feeling that maybe... I was, in a sense, I'd done all that I could do and that what I would now have was a sort of niche audience who liked my work, but they wouldn't necessarily expand. And the other Berlingo just literally took off. It won prizes and my agent went to the States and published it first as a paperback. And then I went to the States and did a book tour. And the publishers were so excited by it that they then published it retrospectively as a hardback. So usually you go hardback, paperback, and this one, the paperback was so successful. They published a hardback edition afterwards and everyone who bought the paperback bought the hardback for their libraries. It just became, I mean, it was pretty well an overnight sensation. I started the book tour in Los Angeles with, you know, four people and the book owner's dog as my audience. And I ended up in New York and Barnes and Noble threw a party for me, a cocktail party for me, and said that they would give me a window in all of their stores with the other Berlingo. It was really quite, really quite Cinderella-ish. And at the time, 
I just sort of took it in a slightly bemused, you know, oh, this is nice. This seems to be going well. But that was, you know, a real, real breakthrough novel. But, you know, having had such success, early success with Wideacre, it didn't feel too alarming. It felt more like it was what I had wanted. It was what I should have got to. And then finally, here I was. It felt very, very satisfying. And to the the second part of Simon's question about the experience of seeing your work adapted, what was that like? And were the rights sort of snapped up before the book was published or in the wake of it and and while it was getting lots of attention? No, the book was published as a minor publishing event. Nobody knew that it was going to catch on in the way that it did. And uh, when it did, it became very, very big in America. And that's when it got the Hollywood attention and uh, also even before that, there was a BBC adaptation uh, which was done very interestingly by the really wonderful uh, producer, Ruth Caleb, and she suggested doing it very low budget as a sort of improvised drama, one-hour drama. And it, I was very much part of that and very interested in that process. And then the sort of the big Hollywood train came in with Peter Morgan, the writer, who went on to write The Crown, and, you know, big... Hollywood stars, Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman and Eric Banner, who put in wonderful performances on a script which was, which Peter consulted with me all the way through. And there was only one point where I said, this is absolutely wrong and I can't stand it. And he, as the playwright, said, yes, I know, but it's got to be. So it goes the way the it goes the way the producers and directors want it on a Hollywood film. There's nothing you, the original writer, can say except I don't agree. It's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it's interactive with people's writing lives. So be as, as open or as guarded as you're comfortable with. But how during your career has the financial side worked? Was there a time when you suddenly when you realised you could make a living doing this, and a, and a later time when you realised there was substantial money in it, or was it a more incremental rise? Um, we we always love to go into this. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's important and I like to be quite transparent about money because I think it's important for women to know the value that they are being paid at and even more important to know if men are traditionally being paid more. I was extremely lucky in that because I already made my living from writing, I had an idea of what my day rate ought to be. And I think one of the real difficulties for particularly women trying to be freelance writers or trying to work at all casually is that you don't have a proper idea of what your expenses are and you don't have a proper idea what a living wage would be for you. And insofar as anybody can, you really need to get a grip of that so that you can make sure that you are working for a living wage or decide that your writing is a hobby. You know, but what what I think is disastrous is to go like, I'm going to make a living from writing without knowing what that needs to be. So I was really lucky. So I said, as I said to my agent, it's got to be £15,000, which is what I knew my annual costs were at that stage, living uh, with a man who was earning also. So we knew what we had. And then she said, no, it's going to be more on Wideacre as everybody who wants to know knows, it sold for £250,000, which was an unbelievable fortune to me then. I couldn't have imagined that amount of money. But I, what I didn't realise is that they don't write you all of that cheque straight away. <laughs> uh, so uh, I had so a period of real 
scrimping between even before the contract was signed. Uh, then I made my life substantially harder by refusing to sell in South Africa. So the whole contract was held up. It was during the time of apartheid and I had always boycotted South Africa. And nobody, unbelievably nobody at Penguin Random House, it wasn't Random House then, it was Penguin. Nobody at Penguin apparently had boycotted South Africa before. So they said they'd have to reconsider the entire contract and they'd have to reconsider the entire money out of it. And that was quite an interesting test for someone whose radical politics hadn't led them into loss of wages that point and I really just went this is I've got to stand by my principles here so I said no I'm not publishing in South Africa and I didn't until the end of apartheid it didn't cost me very much money anyway but there was a long period where there was no money at all prior to the payment for the contract and then a long gap again before the payment of money on delivery and I didn't realise of course when I was going into publishing that most contracts are divided into four. Thereafter I got less and less money including for the other Bolin girl which was part of the decline which was very very worrying and it meant that literally every year at Christmas I would write I'm ashamed to say a four-part Christmas series to get me through Christmas presents for my kids. So it wasn't exactly hand to mouth and I was a bad manager, but literally I I behaved as I always have done as a freelance writer, which is like, how much money do I need here? What format do I need to write in to get it? So while I was writing the novels for love and diminishing amounts of money, I was increasing my other work, my other writing work to get in the money that I needed to top up. And then, the other Berlin girl happened and then thereafter it, I've just been paid extremely well and I've had a, an unstoppable continuation of contracts so I don't have a gap between one book and I, what I do now which I didn't do before is I now sell in advance so like I will have a contract for usually three books at a time and that will be I don't think I should say but that will be more than a million well, thank you for your for your candour on that. We're coming towards the end of our time, so a final question for me is is what you make of the state of historical fiction today? You sort of alluded that before you wrote Wideacre that, you know, it was very sort of focused on romance. What do you think about writers today and, and, and how they're interpreting the genre? I think it's really, really, really interesting today. I mean, the developments which I couldn't have imagined when I wrote Wideacre have really taken off. So, for example, lesbian love stories and lesbian history is now absolutely mainstream and wonderfully explored by writers like Sarah Waters and Emma Donoghue. Um, someone like Kate Moss is doing, like, really interesting psychological and family history uh, in her series. I mean, I just think it's it's quite extraordinary how when you bring a modern consciousness, and exactly to your point earlier, it doesn't have to be anachronistic. It's not that you're saying, I want stories about this, and therefore I'm going to invent it and graft it onto the historical past. It's what these authors are doing are going to the historical past and looking for these sorts of characters and finding them. It's a completely authentic way of writing historical fiction. And it means that it's become so much more interesting for 
people who are interested both in the historical past and both in particular aspects of the historical past. Could you tell us um, about the whole question of historical fidelity in fiction? In your view, like, how important is it? And, you know, you've had some kind of spats with David Starkey on, on some of these issues and things like that. I mean, what is your your philosophy when it comes to what should hew to the historical record and what can be invented? OK, I've never had a spat with David Starkey because I've never replied to David Starkey because it's not worth replying to. And also, I don't want to be in a spat with David Starkey or indeed anybody. Fair enough. <laughs> so that's, there's that. In terms of historical accuracy, I think every writer has to make up their own mind and that will be determined by how much the history matters them, how much the fiction matters them. To me, a historical novel is a hybrid and that's what's so great about it. So I like, I intend to write a novel based entirely on the historical record. And the only places that I deviate from the known historical record is when the historical record itself is uncertain about something. So if you're writing a history, you can say, we think that Elizabeth was ill with this particular disease, but it may have been this particular disease. And you don't know from the original material that you can consult, which it's going to be. In fact, if you're writing a novel, of course, and especially if you're writing it as Elizabeth, or if you were writing it as Elizabeth's doctor, you would have a certain opinion about what the matter was with her. And you would say that. So you don't have the luxury in writing fiction of saying to the reader, could be this, could be that, could have been something else. Equally, when you're in the, if you're writing a novel as I do in present tense, you don't have the, the joy of hindsight. So you can't say, I'm not, really going to write very much about this gallop off into the country because we know they didn't get anywhere. We know it was a completely unsuccessful venture. It makes no difference to the history. It might as well never have happened. If you're in first person present tense, you gallop off thinking you're going to find something extraordinary or do something extraordinary or win the battle. So there's this lovely immediacy to historical fiction, which I think makes history so much more interesting. But it does mean that you take in things that a historian wouldn't bother with because they're failures or they're a waste of time or they're of no significance. So your idea of what is a significant fact changes absolutely dramatically if you're writing fiction especially if you're writing present tense fiction. Personally, everything that I can check, I do check. And everything that I, and my intention is to get everything absolutely right. And of course, because I am a mere mortal and fallible, I don't get everything right. But I do quite often change in the next edition, in the next printing. If it's something like a place name that's wrong or something like that, somebody writes to me about it. I'm very, very grateful when people point out to me and I will change it. If it's somebody just brought out a new book about Mary Queen of Scots and I wrote a book about Mary Queen of Scots a long, long time ago, I'm not going to go back and rewrite the whole novel on the basis of a new biography. But if it's, if, it's a, if it's a historical fact, especially if it's a significant one, I do like to get it right. Well, that's a, a fitting note to end on. Thank you so much for speaking to us today and wishing you all the best with Normal Women and everything else going forward. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. That was your Always Take Notes interview with Philippa Gregory. You can follow her on Twitter at Philippa G Books. Her website is philippagregory.com 
and Normal Women is published by William Collins. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Philippa? I mean, she's someone we've been trying to get on the podcast for a long time. So it was really, really great to to have her on. And as I mean, I say this every time we have a sort of megastar on, but to hear about the experience of having a, a sort of mega literary hit and what that's like. What I thought was very interesting with her is she talked about how, you know, her first novel sold for a lot of money, um, I think in the in the 80s. But then her career, in her telling at least, had entered this kind of downward turn until The Other Berlin Girl, which then changed things all over again. So I thought it was very interesting, you know, to talk about the, the sort of twists and turns that and a career that from the outside just looks like sort of unparalleled success can have. What about you, Rachel? Definitely. And again, also the experience of adapting The Other Berlin Girl um, in terms of producers and directors having the final say. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was an interview full of um, funny anecdotes. Loved to hear more about Fat Beth and the chloroform. But I thought it was fascinating in particular on interpreting history and Victorian sources in particular and the way in which historians always, you know, inevitably apply some of their own values to the to the things that they're reading. Yeah, I think you're definitely right that people's uh, reaction to new materials is always shaped by what they've read in the past. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. We're on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. Goodbye.